This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 254 today. Uh, we are joined again for part two uh, with our guest, Bobby Azarian. Uh, Bobby is a neuroscientist who recently wrote, wrote the book, The Romance of Reality. Um, and he just had a recent interview, I think a couple months ago, on Joe Rogan. I recommend checking that out. It was a great interview as well. Um, and yeah, we're going to, part part one kind of got messed up with some tech issues on my end i switched studios uh we just recently moved and i had to figure some stuff out but we should be back in business and uh maurice is still out sick shout out to maurice love you bro feel better uh we're also battling something over here at my house so working on getting through that as well uh but we're still here we're still doing it we're still moving along so uh you can check out bobby's book i have the link down below um and uh yeah, we're going to get to some other stuff there, but I'm not going to go through the whole spiel. If you want to support our show, all you have to do is click on the link tree. And, uh, yeah, uh, we've got merch. We've got Patreon, a um, whole bunch of stuff. So maybe we can do a short Patreon segment with Bobby here at the end of this episode, too. Uh, I think people would enjoy that. So, um, And one more thing, if you want to support the show and you don't want to do any of those things, just please just go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a nice review. We really appreciate that. So. Uh, but without further ado, welcome back on the show, Bobby. How are you? I'm good. Excited to be here. Excited to have you back. I was a little uh, disappointed last time when my connection kept dropping the uh, signal. So um, last time we discussed abiogenesis, uh, a lot of the science and precursor to life, and we discussed entropy and you know all that great stuff. I thought this time around we'd get to some of the more fun stuff consciousness uh psychedelics ai you know all that kind of wonderful jazz uh but why don't we talk about consciousness first since everything uh is predicated around consciousness that's how we observe things that's how we interpret things um so why don't you give us a little bit of a 
look into how you view consciousness or at least how you, you know, uh, describe it in your book. All right. Um, let me give a couple sentences, just kind of summarizing, uh, what you just said, uh, describing last episode, because it kind of creates a context that consciousness can fit in. Um, uh, so basically the argument I made was that, and this is kind of the new thinking in origin of life research. And it's really, um, been illuminated by uh, findings uh, from the field of thermodynamics. So the idea is that life emerges inevitably wherever the conditions are right. So that life is not this cosmic accident. It's actually something that the universe cooks up where the conditions are right. Um, so it's not like we're this freak accident. It's actually we're a part of the cosmos and we're a natural manifestation of physical laws and the evolutionary dynamics that emerge from those laws. And to me, this has spiritual implications because it means that, you know, the universe in some sense uh, has parameters that make it such that it must produce life. Uh, the laws of physics necessitate the emergence of life. And that's kind of cool. Um, the other thing to mention is that the story through which we can understand life and understand reality more generally is that there is this tendency towards decay that's associated with the second law of thermodynamics um, that uh, inanimate systems abide by um, or closed systems, systems that aren't open to the flow of energy from the outside. And systems that are able to capture energy from the outside can sustain themselves against this tide of entropic decay. And so you can see the, 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 there, there's really a, a story, a cosmic story here. And that story is what I think um, really deserves the title of a true theory of everything. And it's this story of order versus disorder or life versus entropy and knowledge versus ignorance. And so life emerges because um, evolution is basically this counter tendency to this tendency towards decay described by the second law of thermodynamics. And uh, it seems like this is a dynamic, this kind of yin yang um, order versus disorder dynamic that creates life and uh, through evolution, um, basically, life uh, becomes increasingly intelligent and complex um, uh, necessarily. So this was kind of baked into to the recipe of the universe. Um, so consciousness, what is consciousness? Uh, consciousness is part of that story. Consciousness is what allows life to circumvent this second law of thermodynamics. And it's a really important aspect of intelligence um i think we're seeing this you know these great breakthroughs in artificial intelligence but they're still not really intelligent like when we ask siri like a difficult question that it doesn't have a store to answer for it'll give us an answer that's not really like impressive we can tell that it's not sentient it's not conscious computer programmers and uh you know robotics engineers have not cracked that code yet Neither have neuroscientists, but um, neuroscientists are start starting to get a more complete picture of what gives rise to consciousness, what gives rise to this phenomenon that that gives meaning to all of reality because it's the mode by which we experience everything. Um, and so there are some exciting theories that are emerging explaining consciousness as a result 
of integrated information. So there's a specific type of computation that allows a system to make these mental simulations of the world. And then there's a philosophical aspect, like why should anything be conscious? And I think that can be only understood in this context of this larger story, this larger cosmic story that I mentioned. Um, and you can see that story as one of uh, life emerging necessarily and then taking over the universe. So it's as if consciousness, uh, you know, this this building plan that I mentioned, this like baked in recipe for life um, necessarily gives rise to consciousness. So it seems as if the universe or at least the you could say the matter in the universe is starting to wake up through the evolutionary process and nature is starting to be able to experience itself. Yeah, interesting. And I think we all um, have gotten maybe a little lit up and discussed the idea of possibly um, the universe, that being the case, that it's experiencing itself or, you know, created us so that it can be aware of itself, something along those lines. Um, so I definitely find that interesting, and I think we can all relate to that. I think we've all pondered that at one point or the other. Um, you know, I hope so. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think you know, people like you have pondered that, or other people well, maybe. smoking up, as you said. <laughs> but um, I think I think some people, even physicists, it just hasn't occurred to them, or they haven't taken it seriously because it might sound a bit new agey or unscientific to talk in those terms about the universe becoming conscious but that's really what's going on if you look at the mechanistic story that's what's happening and uh we gotta you know take that seriously so i'm really glad to hear you know people like you and i'm sure your listeners have have thought about it and um you know writing the book i knew there'd be people out there that it would resonate with so it's really happy to, no right absolutely happy to i mean there could be this thing too where maybe i'm just assuming that as well i have talked with that or talked about that with a lot of people, but yeah, I mean, there probably is a decent amount of people because, I mean, with all these topics, one thing I found from doing this podcast is people don't really talk about this kind of stuff, and the people that do are the ones that really do it, right? They have podcasts, or they do these Twitter spaces, or whatever the case may be, but people that don't, you know, there'll be an, an article will be like, oh, UAP or UFOs are real. And then people will just go about their day. Like that didn't just happen or, yeah. Um, or did it mean anything? You know, it was just yeah. another news story. Or yeah. psychedelic breakthroughs help mental health and people just move along with, with their day or whatever the case may be, you know? So, um, yeah, that's really interesting too, because, um, you know, we're just hit with so much information. People just aren't sure what the serious stuff is. And, uh, mainstream news is really bad at being able to pick out what's important too. Um, like why in CNN, you know, you're saying, seeing the same stuff all day. You're not seeing them announce, or at least they're not doing like a big segment on breakthroughs and psychedelics. Um, you know, other things that are going on. And you see these stories from time to time. I mean, Michael Pollan's HBO special, uh, How to Change Your Mind, mm -hmm. that's pretty exciting that that's out there. But overall, like, um, yeah, mainstream news uh, leaves out a lot of the really interesting and cool stuff. But I guess that's what podcasts are for, right? And that's what guys like you are. That's why it's so popular in one regard, because I think people are sick of these, like, sound bites and these little segments that only last a couple of minutes long and you can't really get any information from that so yeah i mean and being able to fully flush out a, a thought or whatever i think is important because um 
you know, you're having important conversations, you want to have the time and the space to make adjustments or connect with somebody on that level. So I think that that's important. Um, when you look at, so last time I mentioned, I was trying to come up with the term, I said polymath, but actually the term is for what we're discussing and what you are pretty much is, is complexity science or a complexity scientist, somebody that maybe has one specific or two, a couple uh, main fields, but then you're looking at a lot of scientific disciplines from like a bird's eye view and kind of putting pieces together. Would that be a correct statement on that? Yeah. And I would say a lot of the founders of this field were polymaths and um, you know, because it's not even clear how many fields complexity science involves. I mean, you can name the, the obvious ones. Um, so the scientists, they, they would probably say things like chaos theory. And uh, we mentioned uh, non-equilibrium thermodynamics last time. Um, information theory, cybernetics, evolutionary theory, those are definitely, you know, kind of core to what complexity science is. But then you have like, you know, this new science of networks, you have what, you know, every, every, so all the higher sciences too, like psychology, economics, sociology, if you view a society as a complex adaptive system or a super organism, then uh, sociology becomes the domain of complexity science as well. Economic networks are these complex adaptive systems. So that's part of complexity science as well. But now, um, you know, if we want to answer these big questions about consciousness, which complexity science must do because, you know, co consciousness is uh, a feature of, of complex systems, um, then you need to start getting into philosophy of mind. Uh, you need to start talking about some uh, uh, metaphysics. I mean, that's really unavoidable and you, um, yeah, yeah, there, there, there's really no limit to what complexity science is because if it's, you know, everything is systems and it's trying to describe all complex systems, then it really touches on everything. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What would you say? Um, so, like, so you're a neuroscientist, so you're aware of cognitive bias, pareidolia, all these different things that, you know, we're all subject to. I mean, so when you look at science and the scientific method, um, isn't it fair to say that, like, I think people put scientists up on a, on a pedestal, right? I mean, just because they have a certain amount of data or information, especially now you see a lot of scientism out there. But in, re in reality, this is just an ever-evolving paradigm um, that we're just constantly, again, I'll bring it up, but like we're all Sisyphus pushing this boulder up the mountain. There is no, like in the moment there might be, you know, a better picture or we have like some answers, but then that's going to get replaced or debunked or whatever in the future. So why is it that you see so many scientists so dogmatic about what is and what is not? Um, and don't you think that when people look into metaphysics and metaphysical things that maybe they understand that there's more out there and that we're just beaten given, you know, the dogma of the day or whatever at the time. So like they're, they're just looking for something more than that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, extremely important point. Um, in chapter six of the book, I really talk about this because it gets into this field of philosophy that, again, is important to complexity science called epistemology. And epistemology is uh, basically the, the study of knowledge or the theory or philosophy of, of knowledge, how we acquire knowledge about the world around us and how we can be certain that that knowledge is valid. I mean, everybody has their own beliefs and they assume that their beliefs are true. Um, and a lot of these beliefs conflict. So a lot of these beliefs can't be true. Scientists of the present time, like whatever time you're in when you're a scientist, you have this tendency to have this bias where you think that the current model uh, kind of explains everything, um, that it's the correct model, that, you know, we, we didn't know things in the past, but then we got science and now we know you know, almost everything. And in the 90s, um, before we started finding out a lot of shocking things that, you know, we we realize are cosmic mysteries now, like dark matter and dark energy, uh, the the rate of expansion of the universe seems to, to change. It's not constant. Um, are there multiverses? Are there many worlds? Um, you have all these, you know, questions that Oh, a very cool one that is, you know, is, is somewhat new. Uh, they found that um, galaxies spread across the universe and like these distances where it's too far for gravity to be interacting and synchronizing these things have this harmonious movement. There seems to be um, some larger superstructure that these galaxies in separate parts of the universe um, are connected by or are embedded in that um, for some reason synchronize uh, their movements. And that's really weird. Um, but in the 90s, we were starting to think that we had solved all of the problems. And this um, uh, science journalist named John Horgan, who was a journalist for Scientific American, wrote a book called The End of Science because it seemed like we had explained uh, almost everything, like the Big Bang, uh, black holes. Um, it was thought that at the end of the universe, it would, it would end in, in a heat death. Now, you know, that it's turning out that that's, you know, maybe not necessarily the case. Um, there are a lot of things that, uh, we thought we understood completely that, um, now we already see, and, you know, physicists will admit, um, at least some of those things I mentioned, um, they'll readily admit that, you know, we don't understand what's going on and, it's been said that there's kind of this crisis in cosmology to explain some of these things. And um, so uh, the point you made about like paradigms being incomplete, um, this is super important that we understand because, you know, Newtonian mechanics seem to like explain a lot of stuff. Like we could predict the motions of the planets. We could predict, you know, uh, the motions of things on earth if you threw a ball where it would go um, all these things about forces um but uh then einstein came along and showed that those things were approximations and that general relativity described you know things in a deeper way and that there wasn't this gravitational force pulling an apple from a tree down to the earth uh there was um there's actually um uh, mass causes distortions in space-time, and it causes space-time to bend, and that's why the the apple falls to the earth. Um, and then we had quantum mechanics. Yeah, and then you think just... like birds were like lighter, right? But we know now that the, they're pushing, you know, the air with their wings. But back then, it was like they thought some matter was 
less dense than other matter and that's why you know i I didn't even know that but that that sounds totally like something that would be the case you know you would you can understand why they might think that um so yeah uh well it's just just an idea like newtonian physics and how far we've come even though that was revolutionary at the time you know um and then yeah and then then quantum mechanics hit and then shit hit the fan and like (laughs) you know it was like at at the smallest scale things can be in multiple places at once you have entanglement what einstein called spooky action at a distance i just want to point out i was talking about newtonian physics not einstein's theory of relativity because obviously that that's very different (laughs) yeah so um so it's 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 wrong. It, you, if if you think that you your 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 scientific model, your paradigm, your theory is the correct theory and everything's correct about it, you're gonna be proved wrong. We can't make that assumption. Certainty is dangerous, and I see a lot of famous physicists doing this. I won't name any names, but there's a lot of physicists who name are them. just sitting. <laughs> throw, them, throw them out there. well so so well so i so i mentioned this in my book but brian green wrote a book uh i i don't know if it's called the end of time um but he just came out with a book like a year ago and it, he just you know nonchalantly says that life is a transient phenomenon life's you know it's it's gonna come and go when there's absolutely no reason to think that uh definitely no reason to think that that is a like with with full certainty because what we've understand from this picture that i was describing is that life can continue to persist as long as it can uh, figure out ways to unlock the energy in its environment that allows it to sustain itself so every star in this in the sky is a big battery waiting to be exploited by life and physicists like freeman dyson um People like Paul Davies, a lot of people have, you know, described how life could expand throughout the entire cosmos. David Deutsch, Stu Kaufman's a complexity scientist. There are a lot of people that think this complexification process continues, this knowledge creation process. And that gives you a, a wildly different picture of the universe, uh, something like a, a biophilic universe, a universe that, you know, uh, must be understood Um in the context of the fact that it gives rise to life. Yeah, very interesting. Um, So back to consciousness. So is it the complexity of the vessel, meaning that our biological causal line has led us to this point where there is now enough complexity where we can house this consciousness? Or is, is it primary or is it something that comes through the biological evolutionary process? Yeah, that that's a great question. That's like the million dollar question in like philosophy of mind is basically is consciousness fundamental or is consciousness emergent? And I'm going to give an answer that's basically none of those things um, because I'm going to say it's both. And by that, I mean that. um, So let me just explain, I guess, both sides. Um, The idea that's emergent says that Basically, consciousness isn't there. It isn't anywhere in the universe until life emerges. And then sometime after life emerges, maybe with the emergence of life, maybe with the emergence of brains, I tend to think that um, consciousness comes with the emergence of brains. But the idea is that at some point in the evolutionary history uh, of life, consciousness comes into the picture and 
that's kind of mysterious to people or it seemed kind of mysterious because it's like how, how does it suddenly poof into existence and artificial intelligence researchers who are trying to create conscious systems um don't know either and they think that it might emerge with just enough complexity of that artificial computational system I don't think that's true either. I think it takes a very specific kind of architecture that, you know, biological machinery has found through billions of years of the evolutionary process. Um, but I do think it emerges. So before, you know, explaining why I think both those answers are true, um, just to get to the fundamental camp. So the idea that consciousness is fundamental um, is called panpsychism. And the idea is that because it seems so strange that consciousness suddenly poofs into existence, like what magically gives rise to this, you know, subjective awareness. Uh, the idea is that consciousness is fundamental the way um, like uh, mass would be fundamental or charge would be fundamental. And that every unit of matter that exists in the world has some modicum of consciousness such that even subatomic particles have a little bit of consciousness. And the idea is that when these uh, units come together in a larger um, integrated unit, like a brain, that all of these little bits of consciousness add up to create this kind of robust, rich conscious experience that we feel. Um, so that was the reason that's become more attractive recently is because the problem of explaining how it emerges is seems so hard. And the idea, there's also this idea that wherever there's like information processing or information integration, you have consciousness. Um, and then, you know, people have described the universe and, you know, in these computational terms, you can describe any physical system in these uh, informational terms. So, um, you know, that, that, that idea of panpsychism, that everything is consciousness is is trendy and popular and i won't say it's the majority view but it's you know it's a it's a big contender a lot of respected people take that seriously kind of the same way people are taking the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics seriously which is another very strange thing and and it's not new though right i mean it goes back to ancient greece even aristotle had his theory of consciousness in which you had plant consciousness animal consciousness and human consciousness and animal consciousness was its own th or uh, plant consciousness was kind of its own thing then animal consciousness ha housed plant consciousness and its own version of consciousness and then it's kind of like a step up and then human consciousness and housed the plant and the animal and we had our own variation if that makes sense at least that was my yeah. understanding of aristotle's understanding of it yeah i think that's right and um and uh, I think it goes back even farther, this idea that even like non-organic matter is conscious um, in like Eastern religion. Um, so, yeah, it's a very old idea and it's been articulated in like modern terms by people like the philosopher Philip Goff, him who wrote a book called Galileo's Error. And he's kind of like riding this wave that was created by integration integrated information theory Giulio Tononi's theory which basically says that any any amount of integrated information should have some sort of conscious experience associated with that I don't think that's right I think conscious emerges with brains because they are basically uh systems that can construct a mental model of the world around it it's it's actually this kind of simulation that the system is doing and then the really to the the magic ingredient to have 
a conscious observer is that the system starts to model itself. It starts mm. to, you know, create an understanding of, it, of, of, of itself. And that's what creates an observer with a point of view. It's not good enough to just have a model. Like, you know, you can make a computer simulation on your computer and that compute, that little simulation residing inside that, that little virtual world in your laptop is not conscious, I don't think. So it requires, you know, integrated information, uh, which is a special type of information processing. And that's described by this theory I mentioned, Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory. Um, but I think it takes this other step of self-modeling. So I do believe consciousness probably emerges with brains. It could emerge with life, but I don't think anything inanimate has any bit of consciousness at all. Um, and I think the universe is becoming conscious through life, but outside of life, there's no subjective awareness. That's not to say there's not intelligence to this uh, universal process of evolution. Um, so, you know, sometimes I might say something that makes it sound like the universe has this consciousness. Um, so sometimes I would say that it has mind. But when I'm talking about mind, I'm just talking about that it's an information processing system. So um, I think it's important to draw a distinction between consciousness as subjective awareness and this information processing that, you know, your brain is doing information processing when you fall asleep before you enter a dream. There's a period where consciousness just ceases to exist. And so I do think consciousness emerged, but I do think it's fundamental in the sense that it had to emerge. So the laws are such that it was baked into this process. So the way I see the evolutionary process is that it's giving rise to these things. And those things are associated with the goal states of the process. So it's fundamental in the sense that everything kind of exists such that consciousness can arise, but it's not there from the beginning and it's not fundamental in that sense. What about the idea of um, our brains kind of being like a receiver uh, in a way, I know that's kind of a popular uh, yeah no, hypothesis. Yeah. You know, like maybe that like the complexity leads us to a certain point where then we're able to receive these frequencies or vibrations or perceive the stuff around us. Um, you know, it's popular with a lot of the woo stuff, but I mean, it is kind of a romantic. We're talking about the romance of reality. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a romantic idea that maybe you know we're tapping into something and the 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 complexity and the individuality of our brains is what allows us to color the experience and how it's different than other people, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting idea. And people like Bernardo Castro have talked about that. And um, so I think that's still consistent with uh, the, the model I just described, where the brain constructs a world and then suddenly consciousness comes into existence because you have the simulation that's looking at itself. Um, but if you want to see, you know, if consciousness is part of this fundamental story where it gives rise to that, then I don't think that's any different than saying that, you know, basically, uh, life, uh, discovers this configuration of matter that we see in brains that unlocks this signal or unlocks this ability to have conscious experience. So, yeah, I think that's a fine way to look at it as long as you realize that you need this you need this configuration, this special configuration and this kind of architecture and information processing that we see with brains to unlock that signal. I don't think, you know, it's just out there 
everywhere. But um, the book argues that, you know, life, because it is adaptive and it's always learning, it's, it's, it's overcoming its challenges. Sure, tons of organisms die in this process, but the network of life itself has continued since it emerged 4 billion years ago, and it's only gotten better at manipulating the world around it. So I think that process will continue to go on until, you know, intelligence spreads um, through the solar system and then through the galaxy and then other galaxies. And this could possibly have already happened um, elsewhere in the universe. So if the universe itself is becoming more conscious because life's spreading, yeah, it kind of makes that signal story interesting because it does seem like everything's assembling to kind of, you know, have this structure that allows for this resonant, uh, you know, frequency that that underlies consciousness. And it's funny because when people talked in those terms like resonant frequency, like like ten years ago, people were like, "Woo, oh, that's what it's like." No, we we absolutely know that consciousness emerges uh, with certain types of um, global synchronized activity. Uh, so you have like neurons oscillating uh, around 50 hertz. You have um, adaptive resonance theory, which is a new trendy theory. And it's showing that like actually you have all of these systems within the brain, all these different computational modules. And they're, uh, they're doing things that these um, similar frequencies, but they're nested inside like other systems that are doing things that other frequencies but the magic of consciousness when this what's called a global workspace emerges um in you know the frontal area of the brain and then it starts to synchronize everything else and information gets broad broadcast to the other parts of the brain uh we're seeing this kind of synchronous activity so earlier i mentioned this cosmological finding where there's this synchrony between movements between galaxies i think you know i mean if the book is right basically what it's saying and you know these aren't my original ideas these are based on ideas of other people that have been synthesized into this one cohesive narrative then maybe the weird cosmological stuff that we're seeing is just signs that the universe is a self-organizing system it's something like a adaptive system itself um something like an organism and it's evolving towards some larger goal state, some larger uh, what's called an attractor. And again, you know, some people might hear that and think woo, because the New Age community was very much inspired by like complexity science and cybernetics. Um, so that language bled into those communities. But an attractor is a term from condensed matter physics and complexity scientists have uh, apply that term to higher levels. So if you have a stable state in society, that's an attractor. Um, but yeah, so the idea is if life is spreading, uh, there's possibly some, you know, goal state in the future. And maybe there's no final state. Maybe it's just always a series of st such states, but it would be a cosmic attractor that would emerge when life spreads through the cosmos and becomes this unified informational network. Um, Terrence Deacon, a uh, psychedelic philosopher, um, talked about this uh, strange cosmic attractor. Yeah, no, I, I think when people mention the um, the whole brain as a receiver thing, I think there's this idea that maybe either the universe is conscious itself or there's this constant stream throughout the universe. And as you mentioned, maybe the complex complexity of our brains 
uh, arise to a point where we're then able to, you know, tap into that uh, kind of like a, um, you know, a radio or an antenna or something like that. Um, but I guess my question would be, um, so when you look at that whole thing, what would be like the mechanism? Because there's a paper and uh, this came up in a couple of our psychedelic episodes, but there's a paper uh, by, I, don't, I forget the scientist, but they were basically, um, they were doing, um, they were doing a study and they found crystals in the pineal gland. Um, they were finding similar to what autoconia is, which are the little bones, you know, in our ear that pick up vibration. Could that be something that's happening in our brain too? Like something like a piezoelectric system where we're picking up vibrations and things like that. Have you thought about something like that or a possible mechanism or anything like that since you are a neuroscientist? Uh, as far as underlying consciousness? Yeah. So like what would the function be of having crystals, different types of crystals, shaped crystals in the pineal gland, you know, like in terms of what would the functionality be of something like that? Okay, because at first I, I, I thought you were talking about like the mechanism of the entire process, which would go back to like this fine tuning aspect. No, of no, the more of universe. like because that's that's very interesting too. But as far as like consciousness goes, um, so uh, yeah, there, um, you know, I mentioned adaptive resonance theory, and so uh, you have this um, uh, harmonized activity. You have actually what's called a neural attractor. And so this comes from global workspace theory and global workspace theory basically um, says that there uh, are these things called ignition events and those are phase transitions. Like we talk about phase transitions from um, in basic uh, physics or chemistry class. So when water freezes, it goes through a phase change and the, the molecules in the liquid become more ordered. Um, so the same uh, concept applies to these dynamical systems like brains, and you have these ignition events where you have these uh, what are called frontoparietal loops. So to break that down, you have the frontal cortex, and then you have the parietal cortex up here, and there seems to be some um, specific types of activity where um, the, the firing of the neurons becomes entrained or harmonized collectively by these feedback loops. Um, so basically, uh, information uh, embedded in electrical signals uh, is becoming harmonized. And, uh, you know, the, the current moment, what you're experiencing gets fed back to lower levels. And this allows you to have this cohesive field of experience. And it's also what allows you to sort of update your model of the world. You're getting in new information and, and you're learning from that information. Your brain is forming synaptic connections. So these feedback loops are important to intelligence, but it's also thought that, you know, these feedback loops are crucial for consciousness because they do create this um, harmonized state that gives rise to what's called a global workspace, a kind of mental workspace in your mind where you solve problems where you store phone numbers when you're trying to you know hold a, a number in mind just momentarily this is called access consciousness so um yeah uh as far as how consciousness is created i think it emerges from uh harmonized activity and we can describe that as a neural attractor but as far as um the crystals you're speaking of in the uh, pineal gland i'm not sure if they're related um, but, uh, yeah, I'd have to look at that work specifically. Descartes I'll send you the, that... uh, I'll send you the, uh, scientific paper. 
Okay, yeah, Descartes thought that the pineal gland had something to do with consciousness. And, you know, he's often brought up as just like, you know, being wrong because of that thought. But the pineal gland is interesting. I mean, it's responsible for like, you know, secretion of melatonin, which, you know, helps you get to sleep. Serotonin is converted into melatonin. Um, but it's also, uh, I, I think when people have natural psychedelic experiences, it creates a molecule that um, uh, is the same molecular structure as, um, uh, DMT. Yeah. So, so, so to, a little background on that. We've had Rick Strassman on the podcast a couple times. Um, he got into the whole DMT, the spirit molecule thing through his studying the pineal gland. He was studying melatonin and the function of the pineal gland. Um, and he, he, you know, he is aware of all this stuff, but so since what you're talking about, they've now the university of Michigan's done more studies and they found that DMT is not just synthesized in the pineal gland, but the entire brain and cerebral spinal fluid as well. So there might be some connection to that and the nature of reality, if that is the case, because it is the most powerful, uh, psychedelic that we know, um, so far. Um, you know, in terms of the tryptamine and 5-HT2A receptors and all that stuff, because there is other stuff. There's the kappa opioid. There's other stuff happening that, you know, salvia is a pretty potent psychedelic as well. Um, but um, I just wanted to ask you, too, so, like, since we're talking about this stuff, um, you mentioned thought loops. I, anybody that listens to the show knows I have severe OCD. It's I've got it controlled now, but it's been, you know... a debilitating at times in my life you mentioned these feedback loops and i was always told oh it's a chemical imbalance i'm like no that's that's not i know what's going on with myself it's not a chemical and now they just came out with that whole thing about how depression's not caused by chemical imbalance um and i i've thought for a long time that like ocd is like these embedded thought patterns or thought loops that you become more and more um aware of and i know you're not like a psychiatrist or anything like that but i just wanted to make that connection because that's what I feel like what's happening in those moments. They are thought loops that just keep looping over your mind, keeps like stumbling over the same thought as opposed to being able to move on to the next thing. So I thought that that was kind of relevant. Yeah. I think, um, you know, part of what's behind that is, um, kind of the, these loops, um, create a pathway or a circuit and that's uh, a circuit that's not adaptable it's this rigid circuit and you do get stuck in that and it's possible that psychedelics could be a good treatment for that because what psychedelics are thought to do is to relax these belief structures and it does that by what how i think psychedelics work is basically you have the mind is is hierarchical meaning there's levels. So you have this kind of automatic subconscious mind, and then you have this conscious mind associated with the prefrontal cortex and the conscious mind, the higher consciousness, I would say, um, uh, basically uh, monitors the uh, lower mind. And there could be even more levels. There could be minds, but you know, we know it's hierarchical and um, it's supposed to, you know, kind of kick in and, and override some of these, you know, pattern behaviors that might not be adaptive. And when those networks get inhibited, which can be caused by a chemical imbalance, but it might not be a chemical imbalance, um, then you see, for example, this, you know, global workspace associated with the prefrontal cortex that I'm talking about, um, kind of dissolve, like that integrated activity is disrupted. 
And then basically you're left with more of this automatic mind that, that might have these patterns and, and you basically, um, aren't able to adapt as easily. It's not, the mind's not as flexible. So, um, so yeah, I think, um, you know, when people take psychedelics, they talk about the self dissolving and then, um, you know, experiencing this interconnectedness, which I think is this wonderful experience that, you know, probably everybody should have. And Sam Harris talks about the importance of this and that the self is an illusion, but I think it's wrong to think the self is an illusion because it's something that's there that is then gets dissolved. So it's not an illusion. It's something that's emergent and it's there and it's this high level controller. And we have to think of the mind as this kind of cybernetic controller. When I say cybernetics, cybernetics is kind of the, the study, the, the, the science of systems that use feedback loops to be adaptive. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, psychedelics can, uh, maybe work wonders for, uh, some of these types of things. And I also think they allow you to kind of break down that self and experience, you know, things not from this higher perspective that, you know, may serve as well in day-to-day -day operations, but may not be re revealing the true nature of reality, like the interconnectedness. Um, that being said, I do think the self is real and that it is this higher level um, mind is the source of what I would describe as free will. I do think free will is real. We have agency. Um, using consciousness okay, we we got to get into this here because <laughs> yeah okay yeah, yeah. Uh, uh no okay That's but no uh, so so like the psychedelic thing i will speak from my own experience uh and i've mentioned this many times psilocybin at one of my darkest days was a lot and i i already had a relationship with it I, in my younger years i had definitely done um these things a lot and uh it was definitely part of you know the culture in which you know we were into uh with everything and, and art and music and stuff like that so uh, but that being said, you know, mid, my mid twenties is when my OCD came on, which is kind of, I think a natural thing for, um, men in their, you know, mid twenties usually develop these anxiety disorders. That's when you're, you mentioned your frontal cortex, that's when it's fully developed or becomes fully developed. Um, so in that, in there, um, I had some dark days and I used psilocybin, uh, to break free of these thought patterns and these thought loops and look at myself outside of myself and say, what are we doing here? What can we fix it? Or how can we fix it? Um, and to be honest, you know, I know I'm going to live with this the rest of my life, but at least now, you know, having all these different tools, look, some people, you know, SSRIs might work for you. Some people, maybe psychedelic therapy, sometimes CBT therapy, sometimes talk therapy, whatever it is. I think there should be as many options out on the table as possible. We are all different beings experiencing different things. Some people might not want to try them, you know, and that's okay. And now they're they're even doing science to test some of these compounds where they don't have any psychedelic. They're, 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 they're derivatives of psychedelics, but they don't have any of the actual psychedelic component in there. So... Um, you know, that is important. So I just wanted to speak to that really quick and just more options is the better is my policy with all of that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's so cool that you were, you know, willing to experiment with that. And, um, and it did help, did you think, or? Oh yeah. I mean, or... I, look, I mean, I, I'm, I haven't been shy about it. My younger years, I did psilocybin a lot. I've been on hiatus the last couple of years, but, I don't need it anymore. I have meditation. I have other things going on in my life that occupy that space. But, you know, cannabis is always there. Uh, now it's fully legal here and everything. So that's great. Yeah. 
um, that is good, edibles yeah. are helpful, things like that. But uh, but yeah, psilocybin was huge, and and there is a certain element. I think in what gets lost too is we look at um, psychedelics as like oh you know the compounds doing it, but in reality I have a different take on that too because I know that's where science is going with that, and I will still follow it. But it was the mystical experience uh, aspect of these you know these trips or whatever these um, these experiences it was the mystical side of it that is what I felt was most helpful to me to say it's okay you know there's more going on here you know you don't need to be so tied up in this minutia of the day-to-day or whatever is really bothering you and 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 there's just a bigger picture thing happening whether you want to believe in a creator or non-creator you want to believe in the universe or universal energy or whatever it is. There's something greater going on. You know, like we're, what is life? We're here having this conversation right now. This is, this is bizarre. You know, like the, yeah. the fact that more people don't talk about this and at least stop at once during their day and say, what's going on here? Why are we doing this? Like, what's the purpose of this? Um, I think is, is we should all do that. And I think it puts things into perspective too. And it might even put you in a um, different state of mind if you're in a weird place, but so yeah, so uh, it it helped me do that, and it was the mystical side of it, and then you know that led to more of the knowledge, and that's why we're t- discussing this. And that's why I'm reading books like yours and philosophy books and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I think um, people should be more vocal about their personal experiences, and I see more more people coming out about it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. More tools, the better. That's just where I stand on it. I, I I love it um, the the way you uh, talk about it as an as an additional tool. Um, it might not work for everybody. Um, I think probably even if you don't think it works, it probably does. Kind of, um, you know, if it relax relaxes belief structures, it could be working in ways that you're not realizing. Like you may just be become less dogmatic or ideological yourself. Um, but I, I do think uh, you know the the mystical component is huge. And I hope neuroscientists out there who are doing this research, and I have some friends who are involved in this research, like uh, Adam Saffron. He's a neuroscience uh, neuroscientist at the Johns Hopkins Lab for Psychedelic and Consciousness Studies, and uh, I know that you know he you know really cares about this mystical component. The reason I bring it up is because it's not just Give about him a shout. Tell him, tell him, get on the show. We've had, oh, yeah, I, yeah. We've had Matthew great. Johnson from there on the show. I don't. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, but, I know. I know. Roland Griffiths uh, runs the lab, but um, I don't know Matthew Johnson. But yeah, no, he he'd be a great guest to talk about like free will and um, all this stuff. Um, uh, consciousness. He actually has a very interesting uh, theory called integrated world modeling theory that kind of integrates all of the consciousness theories, and I do. Uh, mentioned that in chapter 12 of my book because it's kind of you know something that brings those theories together under this larger evolutionary picture but yeah you know so some neuroscientists they might think like yeah we can we can recreate this you know chemical structure maybe in a slightly different way where it doesn't have that mystical component and think it's going to work and it might not because the mystical component for some people is really everything and I think, you know, that's what it does. It basically relaxes your, you know, system of beliefs and allows you to see that everything is connected and that we are part of this larger process. If what I'm arguing in the book is true, 
it's a process like life really matters to the universe. Life is cosmically significant. It's the driver of cosmic self-organization. And if that's true, then that's, I mean, that already, so, so Freemason, uh, Freeman Dyson had a quote that said something like, um, God is just mind that has become, you know, so powerful that it's beyond the scale of our comprehension. So if this process is real, then, um, and it leads to this, you know, cosmic mind, that's something like a God that emerges out of this process, something with God-like powers. And I mean, we are evolving, you know, technologically to be able to create like the metaverse, like we're starting to create realities, whether we can create conscious agents in these realities, that's unknown. Um, you know, people have argued like based on integrated information theory, that if you have the right kind of hardware, it's called neuromorphic hardware that uh, duplicates biological architecture, then you could have consciousness. So then I see no reason why that you can't have conscious agents in these worlds. So um, yeah, I think um, basically when you talk about like God versus simulation theory that, you know, this universe is the creation of some intelligent agents that have created this digital reality, um, those ideas are kind of the same. So I think it's time that we kind of like reassess like, you know, all, all of, you know, religions and religious knowledge, um, because for one, it seems like the people who wrote those books were kind of seeing, you know, fundamental truths that were there and they can be informative uh, for that reason. And I also think those books are kind of comprehensive books that recorded down information about what worked in the past. Um, and that's really the scientific method is, is trying something out and testing that idea and seeing if it works. So a lot of things that like religious practices might, you know, have you do like rituals. Those are things that people tried and they found them to be adaptive and to improve their life. And it's a really terrible idea for like just us to understand, like for us to think like, oh, we understand everything through science and to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Those ritual practices have cognitive benefits, at least for some people. They're another tool, like you said. And um, even if it's really to make them need all these tools, yeah. even if it's to make them feel better, I, you know, I have OCD. There's ritual. There, I guess it depends on what kind of OCD you have. But with OCD comes rituals for the most part, unless you have pure O, which is just the thought aspect of it um so there's that for sure um i do want to get to the free will and determinism a little bit and then i want to get to like ufo alien you know uh extraterrestrial life that kind of stuff uh but Great. real quick you mentioned you believe in free will let me just lay something out there you can tell me where i'm wrong where you think i'm wrong wherever we'll go from that okay so uh i thought this was really interesting but um you know you look at Pierre Simon Laplace, who is a 17th century French mathematician, philosopher, and he's talking about that there's a billiards table, okay? And if you were given all the physics, all the mathematics, all the everything you would need to calculate everything, you could figure out where all the balls are going to land on the break, right? Um, so he applied this to the universe, and so maybe somebody at the top, like a god or the creator of the universe, creator of the simulation, simulation whatever this may be, um, would have all of those tools to calculate 
your life, basically, or our lives or this universe or whatever. Um, so therefore, everything, um, f- there is no free will. It's, it's um, maybe subject, subjectively, we believe we have free will. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like subjectively, we believe that we have free will because we don't have the tools to quantify this trajectory that we're on, right? Like we don't have the ability to project where we're going or where we've been or whatever. So we just have subjective free will. And then objectively, and you can go into like the whole Donald Hoffman case against reality and all that kind of stuff, but objectively um, we don't, meaning that there's something else going on that we just can't fathom, if that makes sense. So am I right? Am I wrong? Could both of those things Yeah, so that's a great place to start. I think that's where everybody should start. For example, Sam Harris... You know, it's written a book saying we don't have free will. He talks about a lot, very articulate, but he just is missing a lot, you know, a big part of the story. And a lot of it's with neuroscience. And I don't think he's kept up with modern neuroscience as far as how it relates to free will. Um, We have integrated information theory, which I said um, is kind of, uh, I mentioned before as being like one of these uh, kind of like trendiest theories in neuroscience created by uh, Giulio Tononi. Um, but the, the whole theory is about the, the, the brain and mind having what's called cause effect power and that the brain, um, generates a mind and that mind can act causally in the world. So it's not just the, the atoms pushing things around. It's actually the system as a whole, the configuration as a whole, um, uh, encodes this pattern and the patterns actually start to have this ability to affect uh, to, to, to be a cause and to create an effect. So we, we call that causal power. And now the mathematics of causal power is being understood. Uh, Judea Pearl is a statistician and an AI researcher, and he's kind of created this whole new field of mathematics and statistics um, called causal inference. And, and you can actually look at how the brain is doing stuff. Uh, and it's clear that... Um, w- how things are being pushed around um, uh, is determined by these these networks of of um, not just neurons, but like these uh, modules, these like collections of neurons that are working together, you know. And uh, th- this is what the the mind emerges from this this higher level activity. Not it's not important what the atoms are doing. Um, I mean, the atoms at the lowest level make up all of this stuff, but basically the atoms become part of this larger information processing system. And it's the system as a whole that starts guiding the behavior of those low level uh, particles. So, yeah, so so Sam Harris makes some arguments that um, are supposed to, um, you know, show that free will is not real, but you really need to start where you did with with Laplace and Laplace's demon, um, which you alluded to, um, this idea that uh, the universe is just made of all these atoms, which you could see like pool balls and pool balls follow Newtonian trajectories. And if you knew the initial state of the universe, or if you knew the universe at any state, um, you could use that information to predict what would happen in the future and what would happen in the past. And this would seem to suggest that time isn't real, that everything already exists. It's already set in stone. Um, The problem with Laplace's demon is quantum mechanics. So when quantum mechanics came out, it showed that at at that level, at this quantum scale, subatomic particles aren't in one place or another. 
an electron doesn't have a defined position until you try to measure it and you interact with it in some with some physical system. So, uh, and we also see that there's this probabilistic aspect to nature. So it's not the case that one uh, particle must be in the next uh, in in some defined position um, in the next state uh, in time. Uh, there's actually a wave function that describes the probability of where that will go. And so you can only get a rough sense of where it might be. Of course, if you repeated the experiment lots of times, uh, quantum mechanics does have mathematics that would kind of describe this distribution that you can expect to see. Um, but uh, there's really this probabilistic aspect. And that means it's not a pool ball table. It's not pool balls knocking into each other. If it were, it would just be like a chain of dominoes that falls. There would just be no surprises. It would just everything would follow f like strictly from the the state before in a in this sequence that you could calculate with a sufficiently advanced computer. But quantum mechanics has shown that there's you know nature at the most fundamental level is probabilistic or stochastic, and yeah, that just means that um, there's this aspect to quantum mechanics that was kind of predicted. Um, by the Greeks, um, Epicurus, I think maybe said this, but you know they even understood that like there was this nihilistic picture that emerged from this idea that atoms are just like these, um, you know, little um, little balls like interacting, and th they had the idea of of a swerve, like you know sometimes they would swerve, and that would basically well, allow for the, for this freedom. You had, um, well, obviously Democritus um, came up with the idea of atomism, but then, you know, I always tell a story about there's supposedly a story he was in like a little shack and it got dusty and he saw like a, a light shaft go through the window and he could see the particles and then he came up with the, the idea that everything's made up of these tiny particles. But to what you're saying, I don't know if it's the same thing, but it, it would, was... It, would bu it built on his work. So it basically was saying, okay, if we take that position to be correct... Then the idea was like, okay, you just have these atoms and then they're following this trajectory. And actually they realized that if that was the case, that things would just kind of separate. If you really try to imagine this trajectory of like these pool balls, they yeah. just become more spread out. It's kind of like the statistical version of the second law of thermodynamics. But so they realized that to, um, and I think it was Epicurus, um, to keep like everything from like just, you know, cr creating this kind of, um, structureless void that you needed this concept of a swerve. And so they kind of predicted quantum mechanics, um, you know, thousands of years in advance. And uh, so that's what we see. And um, physicists like George Ellis, respected cosmologist, was a co-author uh, with uh, Stephen Hawking on a lot of important work in the 70s. Um, he says that this basically introduces what he calls causal slack into the chain of causation. You have a little bit of flexibility, and that means that when biological organisms emerge, and these organisms are evolving through you know, variation and natural selection through mutation and selection, and through this process, they're adapting to the environment around them, so they're acquiring information about the world around them. They're becoming these little information processing or computational systems that when they start to work, um, they start to move, you see that organisms don't behave like rocks. They, uh, living systems can't be predicted with Newtonian mechanics. They, you have to understand them as 
pursuing survival goals. So a rock will follow a Newtonian trajectory just like a pool ball, but an organism won't. It will. It can go in directions that you can't predict from, you know, uh, that kind of physics. You need to start talking about information. You need to start talking about evolution and, you know, how natural selection basically functioned as an information channel to create this information in that system. And then you can start to predict things. I'm not even saying that life can't be predicted, can't be predicted perfectly, but I think statistically you can get very close to predicting what aggregates of humans will do and maybe even uh, individual humans to some degree. But um, it's not this vision of Laplace where it was like this, you know, pool ball universe. Um, another thing is that just leaves out the fact that things come together with chemical bonds and form these higher level units. So you got to imagine the pool balls as coming together, forming this configuration, and then that configuration starts doing things. But evolution is really the special sauce because when things start evolving through this mutation and selection mechanism or variation and selection, um, then it starts um, basically accumulating information about the world around it. And then matter starts moving in this special goal oriented way. And what I argue in the book is that this is part of this cosmic evolution process that that matter is coming together. These particles come together and they make these larger units and the larger units have these new causal powers because they're these higher level computational systems. There's new dynamics at each level. There's new emergent properties at each level. There's consciousness that emerges. Suddenly a light comes on and the physical system can experience the world around it. And with humans, we can even imagine futures that don't exist. Um, and we can do uh, what needs to be done to create, to, to make that future manifest, to create that future. So you can have an idea for a company and you can actually go out and raise money and create that company and then influence the world. Um, so whatever trajectory that anyone you know might calculate that we're on, consciousness allows you know sentient beings to imagine all of these alternative scenarios, which philosophers call counterfactuals, and then we can work to create those things. So the future isn't determined in the strict sense thought by Laplace, because it's not a pool ball universe. There's this fundamental probabilistic nature at the bottom level that makes it such that the future isn't determined in the sense once thought. But there does seem to be this sort of logic to it where there are these systems that emerge that then combine to make other systems, which combine to make other systems. And so you can see this trajectory of life emerging and spreading and conscious being spreading and then linking up um, that is statistically predictable. The book argues that, you know, uh, that 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 the old idea of, you know, there being just the future set in stone, which was kind of nihilistic, is out the window. And now you have this richer picture where you have agency, but this agency is also part of this story going towards this cosmic attractor. So there does appear to be something like what Ray Kurzweil calls a cosmic destiny for life and for the universe. Great points. And I will say I was open-minded coming in. I'm not setting my ways on that by any means, but I think that, um, I do like this idea. So like if we're going to be talking about like a God or universal energy or 
whatever that that thing might have the knowledge or maybe we're evolving with it too so then free will does come in but i i did come in with an open mind you did temporarily change it so we'll see if that sticks but uh, let me let me um let me mention one more thing add a, just a slight bit more of nuance to the the free will argument so the point i made is that things aren't determined at the lowest level by physics so biological organisms do have agency that agency is a product of the information in the system so that allows the organism to freely do what it wants to do but when you have these simple organisms you have this biological program that's running where basically input, you know, sensory input is converted to output. The output is the motor behavior of the organism. That doesn't seem totally free either because now it seems like even though you're not determined by the laws of physics, you're determined by this biological program. And so I think that's true and that uh, lower organisms are kind of these deterministic machines, but basically with the emergence of self-awareness, there's a higher level self that's created. It's the self that we experience the world through. And now we can override our biological programming. So and we I, might. There is yeah. a nuance, though, here, though, too. So, like, I'm very artistic. I'm very into music and art. I draw pictures. I play my guitar. I write songs. I'm, you know, do research. I'm into podcasting stuff. But. So there is this thing, human beings are weird. We're almost like an AI where people, there is some sort of causal line of um, inspiration for things. So like I very rarely see somebody where I'm like, that's super original. You can tell kind of where their influence is or what they studied to get to that point. There's very rare people and there are, they, they do exist, but it's very rare where I'll see an artist or a musician or whatever. I'm like, that's crazy. That's unique. I've never seen anything like that before. And when you see it, you know it. But for the most part, most people are just repeating things they heard all day. They saw a tweet. They saw this. And, and here's an example. When you see somebody, somebody like a big influencer, somebody post something, the first 10 posts or the first 10 comments underneath will usually be roughly the same thing i i was first i said this or i'm first and i i, I saw this person said this or something so it's like everybody's responding they, they they all pick out the same thing or the same mistake or the same interesting aspect of it or whatever so i just want to point out that while i agree with you um based on your argument of what you're saying i do also recognize that there is something very boilerplate about the way that we reflect off of one another or the way that we um, interact with one another like like i said some sort of causal line or causal chain of information that leads yeah. us to our you know next destination well that that's exactly where i was going so um uh yeah you do have this kind of you know, higher level determinism, which could be called biological determinism, where the Laplacian kind of determinism would be physical determinism. So you have this kind of automatic behavior where we do respond to something kind of based on the things that we've experienced in the past and our genetics. So this is really important. I'm saying that not everyone has free will and we don't have free will all the time. We can actually lose it. So what free will is, is it's associated with the higher mind of the prefrontal cortex, the eye that experiences the world. Um, and uh, basically, uh, we exercise free will when, uh, so it's called cognitive control, when let's say someone says something to you and it makes you angry and you suddenly feel like you want to reach out and choke that person. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, 
uh, a situation like this um, would be an automatic reflex. If you actually do it, and you shouldn't do that because you'll go to jail, um, that's you being controlled by biological determinism. That's your reflex output. But if you feel that urge, but you engage this higher mind, this mind associated with the prefrontal cortex, and you think, you know, what will be the consequences of me, you know, if I do that, and then you regulate your behavior, that's what free will is. It's this higher level of agency that allows us to override our biological programming. So it's, it's associated with consciousness too. When, when people talk about free will, like we have to really understand consciousness is the secret sauce. You know, Sam Harris and other people have said, you know, uh, determinism doesn't give you free will. And then quantum randomness doesn't give you free will either because you're not, you don't have control over the randomness. That's not the role of quantum mechanics and free will. The randomness just means that there's causal slack at this lowest level. So it's not just like a chain of falling dominoes. That's all quantum quantum randomness does. Free will emerges from the information processing system. It's a cybernetic system that has gained control and that the whole system is this control unit, which you know, fundamental physics doesn't recognize as even existing because of reductionism being the the you know overriding philosophy so free will is our ability okay so for example we can use consciousness you talked about some of those like you know this pattern behavior that you see and that's kind of like why we're getting so divided by like what's going on politically by the media they're just like pushing our little like fear and anger buttons and we're responding that way with the comment section in YouTube, that's a great example. You kind of see these patterns. It's kind of predictable. But what's important are the people that break those patterns. You said it wasn't everyone. So those people that break the patterns, they're using consciousness to create this mental simulation of the possibility space, the space of possible configurations out there, the things that you can create that will be part of this living system. You know, All of our tools are really extensions of the living network. So when, when you're really using your consciousness to override these program behaviors and to imagine futures that don't exist, and then you act in such a way to um, carry those things out, um, then you're actually creating the future. And so even if there were a God, God cannot completely predict, or Laplace's demon, they're the same concept. They can't completely predict what's going to happen. And when we create a system, you know, an artificial life system, something that really works like life where you see this agency, we're not going to be able to predict it completely either. So um, we're starting to have the capabilities of God, it seems, when we're creating these, you know, potentially like artificial consciousnesses, even if they have to have some biological basis, we're still creating them. So there's nothing to say that we're not creations uh of some other intelligent being and that reality has these levels um so it's really interesting question we really don't know how big reality is but um you know what i think we need to understand is our fundamental properties of reality are these ideas of loops and levels that you see with life life is this kind of like thermodynamic loop it's 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 taking in energy from the environment and then metabolism is using that energy in a cycle and then it's dissipating that energy and creating entropy um living systems are informational systems we're updating our model of the world every time we learn something new so we're loops and these loops uh 
uh, are basically nested in levels such that there are control systems that create this hierarchy. And the idea is that, you know, this, this, these cybernetic systems, these living systems are going to expand throughout the universe. And this is the mechanism through which the universe organizes itself and becomes aware. Awesome. Well put. Um, Tom, listener Tom, uh, to the point of free will, he, do we have free will? He he commented, I'm just going to go ask my wife if I've got free will. Hang on. <laughs> so, um, I thought that was funny. Yeah, uh, that's great. But so a couple things. And it's uh, real too. I mean, we do kind of defer, like most of the time that's kind of how we operate and it's smart. But um, so yeah, free will is agency that um, is, is unique and we need to be aware when we're using it because it's everything. It's the only thing that can save us from this trajectory of division that seems like we're going towards like something like civil war. And it's not something that's just local to the United States. There's chaos across the globe. All of us need to understand that we have free will, we have agency, and we need to exercise it because it's the only thing that's going to take us off the trajectory towards, you know, our civilization being doomed. And we need to come to an understanding of love and patience and also uh, whatever happened to agree to disagree. We need to get back to that. So, um uh, great points. I want to circle back, though, to the psychedelic thing, because you mentioned something when you were talking about superposition and free will that kind of I wanted to bring up earlier that I forgot about. So I, th- I, I and I don't know if this is true, but we've had different psychedelic scientists on. And obviously um, there is a big difference between doing like a tryptamine based psychedelic like a psilocybin or a DMT versus something that's like like a tropane, like scopolamine or detura or something like that. And and tropanes can have adverse biological effects too, where tryptamines are usually pretty well, you know, they're they're safe biologically. They might have, you know, implications on your mental health if you're not, you know, stable up there. But uh, and they all could also help you too, which is a weird dichotomy in that regard. But um, so the way I've been thinking about this, and I've been really pondering this, so. When you do, let's say you do like five grams psilocybin or whatever, uh, silent darkness. Um, and I had an anecdote I was going to bring up too, which is that I had one of these experiences uh, a few years ago. And I was shown that this is the realm of imagination. And in the realm of imagination, you can take things, ideas, original things, and bring them to the realm of reality. And that's where some of the best artists are things like that, that that you see. Again, this is just my experience. I'm not saying that I believe it. However, I did experience this, so it does color my uh, beliefs. Um, That being said, you mentioned superposition and being able to observe things. What I find interesting is people that do tropanes, it seems like they're seeing things that aren't really there. Like people... It's not just like an entity experience that somebody might have on a tryptamine base. It's like they're seeing hallucin, they're having real hallucinations of things that aren't actually there, as opposed to a tryptamine based experience where if you have your eyes open and it's not closed eye, um, you will see the the basis of reality. Like if I if I'm five grams of psilocybin, I'm looking at my carpet. I'm still seeing the carpet. It might be flowing and the patterns might be flowing around and things moving. Or I look at a tree and a tree's breathing. Does that mean that, you know, we're witnessing superposition or superposition is 
we're not we're not as the observer we're given more of like an option on reality if that makes sense like we're given more of a uh, like we're disabling our built-in evolutionary pareidolia or pattern recognition, and we're allowed to see more of what might be true. Like this idea that you, you mentioned, superposition observer, we're seeing more options out there for things. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Great question. Um, hard to answer. There's you know uh, uh, a lot of debate over this. Uh, most people think that. Um, you know, superposition is something that we see in the quantum realm. And I tend to believe also that basically these superpositions get collapsed in physical systems. And in the book, I talk about um, uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics called quantum Darwinism, which basically says like there's kind of a collapse. And uh, what I argue in the book, which is kind of like um an adaptation of quantum Darwinism is that this process of increasing complexification and the collapse of that wave function are part of the same story. So that, you know, there is this um, stochastic or probabilistic nature to reality such that there are, you know, different possible futures, but that there's this collapse toward the most stable and most complex future and that, you know, life is part of this uh, process. But, um, so to answer your question, uh, I think at these higher levels, we don't have quantum superposition, but there's something analogous going on with mental phenomena such that you can, you know, basically that's what consciousness allows you to do is imagine all these different possibilities. So what, uh, okay, yeah, this is an important point. So this probabilistic nature exists at bottom. You see it in quantum mechanics, but, um, even when you have, you know, this collapse where you have these, you know, physical systems where things are in definite places, you still have chaotic phenomena, which is completely unpredictable. It doesn't matter how big your supercomputer is, you would have to put in the state of a system to an infinite number of decimal places to be able to predict what that system does. So reality is kind of fluctuating and noisy and statistical and probabilistic even at the higher levels even though things aren't in multiple places at once there's this flexibility to where the future isn't perfectly defined and um i don't think you're you know seeing those possibilities uh, when you're having a psychedelic experience like that, exactly, I think what's going on is the mental model that is encoded in your brain that's constructed whenever we're having a conscious experience by these processes that I mentioned. I talked about this ignition events where you have these frontal parietal loops and this, you know, um, entrained neural activity that's, you know, at this global scale that, um, that model is like oscillating, like the electrical activity is like having like oscillations, which um, correspond to these perceptual kind of wavy, uh, you know, um, experiences. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, I don't think you're seeing like re actual external reality like moving, even though it does have that aspect you know nature is like noisy and fluctuating but i think that corresponds to like the neural activity fluctuating um but it is still showing you all the things that you mentioned it's still giving you all of those deeper insights that the future isn't determined in the strict sense and and that there is possibility so 
if you come away having that experience, I think that's kind of part of this story. I, I, I do, you know, I guess probably one of the most um, um, speculative things I've said, and I've said a few, um, would be that uh, that psychedelics um, basically uh, are, are allowing you to predict this future that hasn't happened yet. Um, I actually lost train of thought there for a second. So, um, go ahead and ask no, the next I, I question. Like, I like that. I've definitely had weird experiences that, uh, that speak to what you're talking about. Um, I do think, um, let's pivot now. Let's pivot a little bit to aliens and, uh, AI and extraterrestrial life. Cause I think that some of those things can be kind of grouped in the same, th in the same way. One of them being, I had a weird thought last night. We were yeah, doing this. Sorry, I'll, let me just. Go, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So the the overall idea of that is that. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, so the biosphere uh, creates these psychedelics, and there's this book called Darwin's Pharmacy, uh, which is a wonderful book, and it kind of has the idea that psychedelics are part of this progressive evolutionary process. And uh, I do think that psychedelics may have um, allowed these uh, transitions in consciousness that uh, could have led to self-awareness. So when I said it was one of the most speculative things that I've said, um, it's basically the idea that the biosphere at, as a whole is this intelligent entity and that it produces these chemicals that allows intelligent systems to kind of experience this less constrained wider space of possibilities so i think psychedelics also have this sort of cosmic significance and if there's a biosphere on other planets with aliens i guess this will be our segue into like the alien stuff is that they will uh have evolved through a very similar evolutionary trajectory and they will probably have psychedelics on that planet which were discovered and would were probably used to you know have insights like ritualistically and then um you know more formally understood like why these properties are actually really useful to people yeah absolutely um so one thing i wanted to i had a thought the other night um so the idea that maybe our minds are evolving at such a fast pace now that our biology or our biological bodies are just not keeping up and we subconsciously know that and so you look at like how fast things have progressed over the last couple hundred years with technology and before that it seemed to be kind of like a slow crawl right um maybe we're becoming more and more aware of that uh through technology because it's expanding exponentially do you think it's possible that we are creating either ai to take us to the next level, obviously, but like to communicate with some sort of other thing, meaning that maybe we don't have the biological faculties or senses to interact with alien life. And maybe there's some people that even say that maybe people are getting ideas or downloads to, and that's the way that you would connect with something like that extraterrestrial, interdimensional or something like that would be through some sort of AI in the sense that we will we will be evolving our minds so much that we are already kind of past, I guess, you know, like, and I think that's why you see a lot of 
the mental health stuff because I think that our, we're just we've got the supercomputer and we don't have the hardware to kind of counteract that if that makes sense. Yeah, I've never heard the theory that AI, you know, is kind of serving the purpose of allowing us to get into a mental space that would allow us to be receptive to I just, alien I messages. I came up with it. I don't know if it exists, but I came, <laughs> I came up with that. So. so, so, so I will say that I do think the evolution of artificial intelligence is part of this progressive process in the same way that psychedelics are part of it. Um, this is uh, an evolutionary trajectory that is predictable, not from low-level physics, but from this theory that the universe is waking up through life. So there was a, uh, a French philosopher and paleontologist and Jesuit uh, priest uh, named Teilhard de Chardin, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man. And uh, this book was um, criticized, you know, heavily by atheists and a lot of scientists because they thought it was kind of like religious or mystical. But it's funny because at the same time, he couldn't publish it without getting kicked out of the church. Like who knows what would have happened to him, but basically it had to be published uh, after death. So um, I think he wrote it in the 20s or 30s, and then it was published, I think, in the 40s. But he predicted the emergence of something called a newosphere. And new is Greek for mind. So basically, he thought that the planet was in the biosphere was moving towards this fully integrated state where humans kind of coalesce into this collective mind. And he associated this collective mind with something like a godlike state. And he called that an omega point. And um, because he had this theory of this kind of teleological theory that there's this purpose to the universe and this cosmic process that life is a part of, he was able to predict the internet many decades in advance. I mean, like I said, I think he started writing this in the 20s. And, you know, so this was pre-computer as well. And a lot of, you know, scholars, philosophers, um, scientists, like uh, my old professor, Harold Morwitz, he was one of the founding members of the Santa Fe Institute, and he was origin of life researcher. And he was, you know, not ashamed to kind of champion the ideas of Teilhard de Chardin. So uh, with this emergence of this global mind, this newest fear, he thought that our technological creations and industry, that it was all part of this process. So there's this, the biosphere would include the technosphere that sets on top of it. And so I do think AI is an extension of the intelligence of the living network and that it will assist us uh, in this kind of progression towards this higher state where we get to, to spread. And I do think if we find aliens, they will be aliens that started off biological and then uh, basically merged with their technology to make something that could you know, be more robust to the chaotic nature of the universe and allow that uh, species to expand. Because ultimately, every life form is playing this thermodynamics game. Even if it's purely AI, it's still playing this thermodynamics game. The system cannot sustain itself. It can't do information processing. It can't do computation. It can't spread. It can't persist unless it's always extracting uh, usable forms of energy from the environment, free energy. So built into life is this ne necessity to expand because of this framing that we've explained, the second law of thermodynamics that requires any living system to always be 
finding new ways to lock unlock the energy around it so that it can sustain itself and so um the book would argue you know based on this origin of life theory that life is inevitable that life probably emerged on many other planets out there if you want to estimate the number of planets it would be the number of planets with sufficiently earth-like conditions and that's kind of a vague word sufficiently like updated lex friedman did like an updated version of the drake equation which is kind of what you're talking about which is the yeah yeah that's great and yeah yeah um i mean we can totally update it with this theory and it would it would definitely change uh everything and make it such that you know life would be seen as 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 more likely and he had richard dawkins on an episode and richard dawkins is an atheist this might surprise some people but richard dawkins was saying that he thinks that uh there is life elsewhere otherwise it would be just incredibly improbable to be where we are at now like technologically on this planet like if life emerging was you know, highly improbable. And then the transition to multicellular life was improbable. And then language and, you know, higher intelligence is improbable. Then we would just find ourselves in the most improbable state of affairs imaginable. So Dawkins not only argues that life emerged elsewhere in the universe, but that it would be intelligent life that you would see this trajectory that I'm describing because life elsewhere would also uh, evolve through Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not a Dawkins fan, but I, I'm not a hater per se either. I'm just indifferent at this point. Early on, I didn't love his stuff, but I just thought it was kind of your, the point of your book is to take away that scientism or that very cold nature of science. And there is more to life. There is a telos or a teleological aspect to all this. And I think that he's been the kind of a detractor of that idea. But. Yeah, you know, my my thoughts changed about Dawkins as I was writing the book because, you know, I always respect him for his contribution to understanding evolutionary theory and genetics, but I thought the selfish gene view had a lot of problems with it and that he was missing a lot. But the more I read Dawkins, the more I saw that he kind of had this teleological progressive view of life and intelligence in the universe and now he's even he's written a paper about he thinks the simulation theory could be true which you know i don't uh, you know that that's a whole other discussion but um he talks about the possibility of like our brains all being connected by this cloud type thing something way you know people wouldn't think that he'd be this speculative but if you google richard dawkins and simulation theory you'll see this paper just from a couple years ago um, and you'll find videos of him talking about this but he does think that intelligence is kind of built into this biological process. And he uh, opposed Stephen Jay Gould, who thought it was all accidental and that intelligence was very unlikely. So, yeah, you will see Lex Friedman be surprised that Dawkins says that intelligent, not only life is actually out there, you know, most likely out there, but intelligent life and technological life and possibly even life that can um, leave the planet. And he's written, you know, I, I think he has, he's talked about spirituality. Um, and I, there's a book called Believing in Dawkins that's all about like, I think it was relig- written by maybe a religious person, but showing that all these statements that Dawkins had said that kind of reveal that he does have this spiritual view that's very different from some of the other atheists, people like Jerry Coyne, evolutionary theorists. Um, so I think Dawkins was basically, 
and Daniel Dennett too, fighting. There was this unnecessary culture war between science and religion, which we can understand because religion was trying to get evolutionary theory out of schools. So naturally science took this anti-religion position, but I think, you know, it was an unnecessary divide. And now we're seeing that the, the, the answer is very spiritual. And Paul Davies, I even quote him, I mean, sorry, Richard Dawkins, I quote him in my book, mentioning that the God of Paul Davies, the God of the physicists, the God that let, uh, you know, set the initial um, conditions and laws and let the universe evolve according to its own um, mechanics uh, is one that you can make a respectable argument for this sort of God of deism um, rather than a God that is always like intervening, like a, a theistic God. So um, yeah, I think his ideas are evolving. It would be nice for him to come out and kind of explain that and be like, Hey, I didn't say that these things couldn't exist. You know, I, I just think we need to be careful with our ideas. We need to, you know, Maybe science it's like a, should be testable and it's really hard to test a lot of these bigger philosophical ideas but maybe it's like a constantine thing it's run time's running down you're starting to grasp at straws and see what's <laughs> the, the sling stuff at the wall i don't know just a thought yeah von um, neumann converted to yeah, well, uh, a I was catholic just saying, on his deathbed you were um you were talking about uh these probes and that's what i was thinking about earlier is the von neumann probe hypothesis that um, you know, some s civilization arrives at the point where they're able to make AI uh, that can self-replicate and then it starts self-replicating throughout the universe. Um, and, you know, some people speculate maybe that's what we're seeing in the sky is some sort of other civilizations, von Neumann probes, or, you know, think about what we do. We send probes out to go look at Saturn or Mars or, you know, whatever. We're sending these satellites out there. We're sending probes out there. Why but when we... you said... When you said in the sky, what 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 are the people? What what what's where do they think they're seeing the the von Neumann probes? Oh, I mean, people that see UFOs. I mean, oh, it, okay, UFOs. Okay. Well, I'm just. I didn't like, know if you. I didn't yeah. know if you meant in some like stellar. Like we yeah. earlier, I mentioned the synchrony between galaxies yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, the people with the UFO sightings. Yeah, yeah. I, I speculated about that on Joe Rogan. Actually, it's funny that you say that because I didn't make that connection between von Neumann probes. Um, I knew about that because like one big contribution von Neumann made that's not really recognized is that idea of self-reproducing automata. So he was really trying to understand and computers, right? I think the Institute at Advanced Study built a computer, which was like kind of. Before oh, yeah, time. he's the von Neumann architecture. He He's, you know, people like Turing created this kind of you know, understanding of like how binary code could work, but like von Neumann was responsible for th for designing the architecture that we use now with like a central processing unit and like memory stores. So like von Neumann is definitely, uh, I would say like one of the creators of the, the, the modern computer and probably the smartest person that ever lived. Um, uh, I, I learned a lot about him. I read this book, American Prometheus, about J. Robert, Robert Oppenheimer. It's like a biography. And I yeah. think that's what that movie Oppenheimer next summer is going to be based around. But Oh, very uh, cool. I've been wanting a, a movie with von Neumann like in some Dude, read this past. book, American Prometheus, because the stuff I've I learned about it. the Manhattan Project and like the ins and the outs, and then you learn so much about like you know, von Neumann, Wolfgang Pauli, like all these physicists, and Enrico Fermi, and all these interesting things that you wouldn't have learned even from watching like a documentary on it. So it's... Um, yeah, the Manhattan Project brought together our greatest physicists and scientists, all those people you mentioned, Richard Feynman, 
um, von Neumann, Einstein, Fermi. Um, and so what I speculated about on Joe Rogan was that, excuse me, um, that, uh, you know, on, on John Neumann's Beth debt, uh, deathbed, uh, they had a federal agent positioned outside his room, making sure that he didn't spill any secrets. So I think when the Manhattan Project uh, created the, you know, atomic bomb, then after that, you know, Los Alamos is a laboratory today that's doing, you know, has some of the greatest, you know, scientific minds there working on stuff for the government. But uh, I, I speculated about, you know, the that the UFO sightings that, you know, have some of them have been recorded, like the whatever the Nemets or something, whether that, you know, it could be aliens. But what if it is technology that was created by the genius of people like John von Neumann and the other people at Los Alamos? And I definitely think that we could have technology far beyond what we've ever, you know, what what mainstream physics recognizes, because, you know, Von Neumann was supposed to be able to look, you know, make Einstein look slow as far as in his ability to do like mental calculations. I mean, as a child, he was. What about like, both, he, though? What about both? What if those? Oh people, no, they would be working together. Yeah, they, yeah. What, they, what they, if those people had? But what if those people had access to stuff? Let's say otherworldly or information or data to work with that maybe the public doesn't have access to. Things like that. I'm not one of these people, too. I, I, I don't like looking at that aspect of the phenomena because you could say this or that or the other. There's really no. But it's just it is weird if you look at our exponential growth in these topics. I've talked to like electrical engineers and people that really know about like technology. And even they say there's things that we come up with, like, not to take the human um, ingenuity, like, you know, um, accolades out of it, but just. There's things that maybe we couldn't have come up with or things that we weren't there at the time and somebody hit. So it's like, is that some sort of genius breakthrough by like one people or a group of people or something else going on entirely? Um, kind of like Bob Lazar story. Of so like that one, yeah. Reverse engineer. I'm not fully sold on anything like that, but I'm just saying like we have data, right? There's data, there's radar data. There's these, you mentioned the Nemitz, you know, encounter the, how many of those have been recorded? You know, what if there's techno sig signatures left behind or something like that? And then you gave that to a von Neumann or a Oppenheimer or somebody like that. I could see something crazy coming out of that. Yeah. So I think a couple things are true that um, can kind of explain this and should blow, you know, everyone's mind is that, yeah, the technology could be real and we could have created ourselves, but it's still freaking crazy because it's doing stuff like you know without like normal signatures of like jet propulsion like it's doing sort of mechanical behavior that can't be explained by you know the physics that we're privy to um so yeah that could be possible it could be this super advanced uh system created by you know the same people who came together to make the atomic bomb i mean these are <laughs> brilliant people that you know, just have the power to do that. Um, at the same time, if you um, uh, buy the the argument I'm making in the book, and, you know, even Richard Dawkins, who's, you know, one of the world's famous skeptics, argued that there should be intelligent life out there on sufficiently Earth-like planets, um, that, you know, there's no reason that we shouldn't think that intelligent life is out there and spreading. 
because it will need to spread because of the second law of thermodynamics, that whole story, it needs to find more energy to sustain itself. Um, but then you have the Fermi paradox and it just asks, where are they then? So that's when it gets a little bit tricky. Um, but, but I think if there was this sufficiently advanced intelligence, um, it's totally conceivable that they might not want to make themselves aware. Uh, I mean, um, obvious to us, they, they, they wouldn't want to be known or if they were, they would, um, do it in a gradual way. Um, simply because if we did find out there were aliens, um, we might start directing all of our intellectual efforts and practical efforts towards things that we would do to, for example, defend ourselves in case those aliens were to attack. Like, and if not, we might start directing all of our resources towards, you know, getting in contact with those aliens rather than doing everything we're doing now to try to get off the planet ourselves rather than you know try to get some you know higher being to like share all of their knowledge with us um we're doing uh so if if you buy this story that you know there is this probabilistic nature to reality and we're discovering these new things we're discovering uh new theories that you know an alien civilization might not uh, come up with. Uh, they might not follow that same trajectory. So maybe uh, an alien civilization would not want to disturb us because they don't want to change this intellectual and technological trajectory that we're on. Maybe we'll discover things that they didn't discover because it's just a different intellectual trajectory. Um, and maybe they don't want to interfere with us because I, I think if we did learn, I think all of our efforts would change immediately. Like we would start like worrying about the aliens and not really doing all the things that we need to to progress. So they could be out there. Almost like harvesting ideas in the sense that maybe we're so naive to what their knowledge is that we're coming up with things that they can use that, um, that like you said, just a different route of thought that maybe they're looking upon to see those routes or something along those lines. Yeah, we, we learn from ant colonies. There, there are ant colonies that do things that show complex behaviors that we don't fully understand. So I think that um, the discovery of, of, you know, these examples that come to mind are probably not the best ones because I'm thinking of like relativity and quantum mechanics. And I do think uh, aliens would have discovered them, but like more exotic sciences that are in the future, maybe, uh, you know, if, in, if intelligent species came together and shared their knowledge, they would probably have slightly different, um, theories and understandings, uh, understandings of nature. And so I do believe that the future, uh, trajectory of the universe involves, intelligences from different biospheres at some point uh running into each other and um it might not be you know cooperative immediately you may have some battle of ideas where they're you know might not be completely friendly um and then basically you have what happens with any war that kind of um, the society kind of um subsumes that other society into it uh, but I think any really intelligent beings would be compassionate simply because we've seen that trajectory with, uh, human life. The more intelligent we get, the more we can 
empathize with others, the more we realize that other things out there can suffer, um, have the capacity to experience the world, to have joy, the same things that we have. When you learn that, you naturally try to reduce suffering because you don't want it to happen to you. So I think there is this moral arc to evolution such that um, if there is intelligent life out there, it would probably be compassionate and would probably try to find some sort of um, peaceful relationship with our society rather than just destroying us. I mean, would we travel across the universe to like destroy like an ant colony on the other side of the world? Just doesn't make sense. Uh, I want to wrap it up here. And if you have time do maybe do like a short Patreon uh, thing after, but um, one thing I've been throwing around this for a while. So like as much as I want to believe these things, I don't just believe things. I try and look into them as much as possible and, develop a philosophy around it and um one thing i've been thinking about though on the counterpoint to me wanting to think that there's all this life and uh, stuff out there is this idea that maybe so like the seeing ufos in the sky or being interested in mysteries and lots of people are interested to uncovering mysteries and um they want to be the person you know the indiana jones or the the sleuth that uncovers that what the answer of the mystery is or whatever um Maybe that's some sort of built-in, like we're dangling the carrot in front of ourselves. Like maybe it's some sort of built-in part of evolution in the sense that um, subconsciously uh, we're interested in this stuff, but maybe we're doing it to ourselves in the same time, if that makes sense. Like we're dangling the carrot, but we're subconsciously knowing that maybe there's nothing there, but we're doing it anyways because it pushes us forward through science, technology, philosophy, all these different things. So what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think consciousness allows us to imagine these counterfactuals, these alternative possibilities, and our ability to do that is what allows us to basically um, avoid trajectories that you know could lead to our doom so um uh just this basic ability to imagine to imagine like you know fantasy worlds like this is you know kind of um the uh the, the reason for dreaming there's a new theory by a neuroscientist called eric hole which is basically saying like dreams is a way for us to run all of these different simulations of what we could possibly encounter in the real world so that we'll be prepared for those things better. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think whether there are aliens out there or not, that there's something productive about thinking about that possibility and what, you know, living in a world like that would be like. And whether it specifically leads to progress, you know, that very specific thing, I'm not sure. But I do think um, if you look at like the totality of how our civilization thinks and, you know, all these different cognitive things that we're seeing um, that we see with, you know, yeah, people like just being obsessed with these questions, I think that it does in some way uh, contribute to human progress overall. Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. So like my whole thing is, is like, I want it to be the real external things, but if it's not, I think it's still kind of interesting that, um, that's the the level that we're on with our minds and, and the way we operate and everything. So if it's not, you can program it right. And you can experience you in virtual reality. 
So um, everything that, yeah, we think of all these fantasies, whatever, whether they're real or not, they're realities that we could potentially create with technology and experience. And in that sense, I do think it's all part of this process. Awesome, man. Well, listen, this was fun. We got to have you back on in the future because there's just so much other stuff that I have like a whole notepad worth of stuff that we could have gotten into. But uh, I want to wrap it up here. And if you have time, I want to do a short Patreon segment. But your book, The Romance of Real The Romance of Reality, I really, really, really liked it. Everybody go check it out. I have the link down below. Is there anything else you want to plug before we get out of here? Yeah, I have a road uh, a Substack and a YouTube channel called Road to Omega. And uh the name is inspired by I mentioned Teilhard de Chardin thinking that the biosphere was headed towards this state of optimal complexity and integration that's called an omega point. So Basically, um, this future of progress that I've described in this interview, um, I think we need to consciously try to direct human civilization toward that point. And so um, the Substack and the channel basically try to take the principles in the book about complex adaptive systems, about evolutionary theory, and apply them to society and to the self so that we actually start living in a way that takes us off this trajectory that we're on right now, um, which seems like it's heading towards like the collapse of our civilization. Dystopian. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's part of this process too. Like you, you will always be on a trajectory uh, towards that unless you consciously try to take yourself on a new path. But that's exactly what consciousness allows. It allows us to kind of, project and see where we're headed but also you know simulate other possible futures these counterfactuals and put us on the track that we need to be on and um there's not much content on both those right now um there are definitely some things up there but um in the next few months uh there's going to be a lot uh more content uploaded interviews coming uh and yeah i would like to have you and maurice on sometime to have a chat Awesome. Yeah, I'm down. Uh, definitely down. We can be your most woo episode and guest that there is. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, for real, man, thank you so much for everything you're doing. I, I really like the complexity science aspect of it and the bigger picture and trying to put pieces together and not being afraid, afraid to put yourself out there and take some, some risks and, and put some things together. So I really appreciate that. Um, again, check out his book, The Romance of Reality. Check out his channel. Check out his Substack. Uh, and if you're interested and you want to support our show, check out our link tree link down below. We have a merch store, which I've created all the designs in there. Uh, we have Patreon, which are, we're about to do a Patreon segment. There's tons of Patreon segments on there, exclusive content uh, that's not available anywhere else. Uh, and if you want to just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we really appreciate that too. Uh, but listen, thank you so much, Bobby. Uh, we'll definitely have you back on. Look forward to your future stuff that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, everybody stay safe out there. We love you, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. This was awesome. Thank you. <laughs>